Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, how could the war in Ukraine end? It's been almost a year since Putin's Russia invaded Ukraine to the horror of the rest of the world. The conflict prompted the greatest movement of refugees since World War II, with an estimated 8 million people fleeing the country. An additional 6 million were displaced within its borders and those who remain have been faced with repeated attacks on civilian infrastructure like power stations. US officials estimate that both sides may have seen as many as 100,000 soldiers killed or wounded. Meanwhile, Putin's forces have been accused of human rights abuses like sexual violence, torture and civilian executions. Twelve months into this invasion, it's hard to imagine it ending anytime soon. The West is piling support behind Ukraine in the form of tanks and other weaponry, while Russia appears to be settling in for the long haul and may even launch a new offensive soon. But a peace deal seems nowhere in sight, so today we're joined by Donika Obachon. He's Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University, and we're going to look at where the conflict could be going and how it could end. Donika, many thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Laura. Now, we had you on this podcast when Russia first invaded Ukraine. Did you think the conflict would still be ongoing a year later? Well, I I didn't think that far ahead. I think very few people did. At the time, the focus was on the day itself. And once Ukraine had survived the first day, then it was on the next day. I mean, it was very much survival mode for Ukraine. Um, I remember very well Zelensky emerging kind of from his underground uh, onto the streets, you know, with his mobile phone and he pointing it to himself and the cabinet saying, we're all here. In other words, we haven't fled the country. There was that other seminal moment, of course, when he was offered an opportunity to leave Ukraine. And um, he famously, of course, replied that what he wanted was ammunition uh, and not a ride. And that was a seminal moment because we didn't know how Ukraine would react and how Ukrainians would react and how the government would react. Um, and then we, of course, saw the leadership of Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, handing out weapons, a reported 50,000 weapons to the citizens of Kiev, making it clear that even if they lost in the battlefield, they would fight street by street for the capital of their country. And then you remember there was a huge long convoy, um, you know, going back, it was reported 70 kilometers, this Russian convoy approaching Kiev, and we all feared the worst. But then, you know, the remarkable happened. I mean, the fight back produced amazing results. Kiev was saved. And, and all the areas around Kyiv were liberated by April. Uh, Russian retreats were rebranded as goodwill gestures. And then, of course, there was the awful discoveries in, in places like Bucha, the, the, the mass graves, the, the, the evidence of torture and murder and, and rape. So going back to your question about you know, those, those early days, I mean, I think, I think the approach of many people, certainly myself, was you know, that we have to listen to the Ukrainians. I mean, it's their country. What, what are they looking for? And from the beginning, they, they've understood uh, that even though, of course, they'd loved if the world had come to their aid, um, you know, in terms of sending troops to, to protect them, they realized that that wasn't going to happen. And the basic request has been consistent all along that they, they ask that they be given the means to defend themselves. They say they have the, 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 the people, they have the motivation. After all, it's their country, but they desperately need the, the, the means because, of course, in terms of, of of military firepower, Russia from the beginning was was always in the ascendancy. And and so, no, I mean, again, going back to your question, I didn't expect that it would last a year. I, th- I don't think anybody did. But uh, 
as as you know, we're approaching now the first anniversary. God, when you outlined, Donica, what just what the Ukrainians have endured and those central leadership figures like Zelensky and Klitschko and the fact that they're still standing is something else. And I mean, can you paint a picture of the scale of the impact that the war has had on Ukraine itself? It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and it's it's so hard to imagine, you know, because this is a country I, I, I used to visit sometimes in my life on a weekly basis. And, you know, just to imagine that the cities that I visited, you know, that in, in effect are no longer there, uh, that entire streets, entire neighborhoods, and sometimes entire towns and, and cities, if we're looking at somewhere like Mariupol, Mariupol is half a million people. Now it's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of that. It's a shell of itself. So it is difficult to paint that picture. I mean, I, I, you know, again, going back to my own experiences, visiting different universities, one of the first universities I saw destroyed was in Kharkiv, where I gave lectures. The entire uh, faculty of, of humanities and social sciences was in flames uh, as early as March. And then, you know, we will never fully understand, I think, the scale, the real scale of the atrocities until Ukraine is, is fully liberated. I mean, so what we rely on now are often anecdotal information. I mean, I had uh, a, a Ukrainian MP who came to visit us at DCU for a conference I organized in Ukraine some years ago. I learned in August, just by chance, that his brother was killed in fighting in Donetsk. You know, and, and it really, you know, drives home to people, I think, you know, that these are ordinary people. These are not soldiers. These are people who have been forced into combat against their will. You know, you see the occasional tweet. Again, it's not an official release. It's just somebody who knows somebody of maybe a, an actor or a gymnast or a, a train driver. You know, people who, who again, were living ordinary lives before February last year and are now gone. And you think of all that, those lives lost, the, the potential lost. So, you know, Ukrainians have been, you know, subjected to state terrorism, essentially, because this has been a very arbitrary fight. There has been a fight in the battlefield. Uh, which we don't hear a lot of, certainly we don't see much of because it is too difficult for the media to get get there. But we have seen things like, for example, during the winter, um, you know, the the arbitrary attacks uh, with with drones and missiles on apartment blocks, on on the energy infrastructure, on the you know public transport infrastructure. And again, it's it's heartbreaking to see. I mean, Dnipro, another city that I, I used to give lectures in. I mean, an apartment block attacked just a couple of weeks ago, about fifty people killed. We haven't seen anything like this in Europe since since World War Two. I mean, and that's and, and of course, Ukrainians were at the uh, at the heart of World War Two. Uh, and some indeed, some of the people who are experiencing what's happening now uh, are old enough to remember uh, World War Two. And, and indeed, I remember there was one man who managed to survive uh, concentration camps uh, who was killed in a Russian attack, 96 year old, uh, not so long ago. So so, no, it's 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 a remarkable vista really that's been inflicted on the Ukrainian people this last year, but very difficult to 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 depict and, 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 and very difficult to imagine. And then shifting our attention to Russia, Donika, let's start with the domestic economy. How have sanctions impacted it? They they are hurting the economy. Um there, I think there was disappointment that they didn't have an immediate effect, but sanctions aren't aren't something that, you know, is is, is a weapon with immediate effect. They're they're for the long haul. And uh, you know, it's it's essentially cutting off uh, Russia from trade, uh, freezing their assets. There are many who argue that the assets that have been frozen, 300 billion in total, should be used to uh, to the benefit of Ukraine and reconstructing Ukraine. That's something that the European Union is discussing at the moment. The sanctions have been incremental. Um, they weren't kind of thrown out all at once. And the, the central bank and other government officials in, in Russia are warning of problems arising from the accumulation of these sanctions. Uh, at the moment, they're trying to put a brave face and it's saying it's not a crisis, but there some parts of the economy are facing problems. But you have to understand that, you know, Russia 
is in many respects not a not a very sophisticated economy. It's based very much on raw materials, on oil and gas in particular. As long as they have somebody who will buy that, there will be some source of income. I think that the, the, the big problem for the European Union at the beginning was so many countries in the European Union, particularly Germany, had a dependence on, on this. And that was, of course, carefully cultivated by the Kremlin over the years. So Europe has weaned itself off that. And that's an important way of of having freedom of movement and freedom of action against Russia because as long as Russia had that ability to turn off the gas as it were it was always going to restrict the European Union's uh, freedom of movement but you know Russia is is vulnerable Russia is a relatively small economy I think we sometimes get overawed by the size of Russia it being the biggest country in the world um, and of course being the, in, the the inheritor in some respects of the the status of the Soviet Union but it's not a global superpower um, its its economy is smaller than that of Italy's um, and and indeed not much bigger than that of Spain. So it's 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 not even a medium sized power. It's something even below that. What it is though is extraordinarily well armed. Um, until going into this war, had reputedly the second largest army in the world, the largest nuclear arsenal. So that's where it derives its power. That's why it is vulnerable uh, in the long term to economic sanctions. So while Putin he might be able to exert less power maybe internationally, and and you mentioned the the political football that was the gas supply. Does he still hold firm at home? He does. It's a dictatorship. So, I mean, dictators usually hold complete power until they don't. Um, and there's usually very little forewarning. And when dictators are deposed, it's usually from within their inner circle. Um, so it's he, what, what he does have, though, is a dwindling population and dwindling resources. He's wagered everything uh, on this conflict, which is why, you know, if he loses this war, I, I think the, the, the consensus is, is that he loses his his position. And of course, if you're a dictator, that's not just, you know, stepping aside and being replaced by somebody. That's that's really losing everything. So he, he does retain, you know, the power ministries, as they're called, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the police, the army. Those things are still at his disposal. But uh, he, he is uh, vulnerable in an unprecedented way because of this war, which, of course, he initiated. And I suppose, as you say, it's difficult to, to ascertain what the public's view is in Russia because of the dictatorship. And, and there has been conscription in the last few months. So we don't really know what the public's view is at the moment. It is very difficult um, to, to, to construct a picture of, of public opinion in, in Russia. I mean, not least because it's a dictatorship. People are wary of, of people who are seeking you know their opinions. And often these opinion polls are conducted by phones. So you're getting this random person calling you up saying, what do you think of the, 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 the Russian leadership? What do you think of the war? Of course, people are wary of expressing any kind of deviance uh, or what is perceived from the official line. There is one remaining independent uh, polling center, Levada. I've, I've had interactions with them over the years. They they report still um, that there is, is is general support for the war, maybe three quarters. But when you break it down, it's not you know it's not overwhelming support in terms of its intensity. There's kind of those who definitely support the war uh, are actually minority. It, 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 you get these kind of then who kind of in general terms are somewhat supportive of the war. When you add those two together, you get the the, the figure of a majority. A lot of people have, have, of course, different perceptions depending on their their age, their, their you know their demographic. The, the state media um, is presenting a particular line that Russia is is under attack. It's it's not the you know Russia attacking Ukraine. It's 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 the West attacking Russia. That this is a survival, a fight for survival on Russia's behalf, and and that will resonate with a certain generation, particularly the older generation who get most of their information from the state media. The younger generation have more options. They they do have access to the internet. And and they are less likely, in that sense, to to take you know wholesale the the official state narrative. And of course, some have left. Many have left uh, Russia since the war began. I, I was in, for example, Georgia twice during the last couple of months, 
and hundreds of thousands of Georgians, uh, sorry, of Russians have fled to Georgia since uh, Putin called that, 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 that mobilization call back in, in September, October. And they're simply hiding out uh, in Georgia and other places in Kazakhstan and Turkey uh, until the war is ended. So, you know, this this is also part of the the the, the general picture. Um, those who and, and by the way, those who left are those with resources. Those who could leave, they had money, they had uh, enough money to, to to buy or rent apartments abroad and get the very expensive flights out of there. Those who were left behind, again, opinion polls indicate that there is a general sense of support, but at the same time, it's it's rather fragile. And Donika, if we return again to Ukraine, we had mentioned the strength of Ukrainian leaders such as Zelensky and we mentioned Vitaly Klitschko in particular handing out weapons to civilians. Now, the Ukrainians have been praised throughout the year for their willingness to fight. Do you think that willingness is still there? It seems to have, if only anything, intensified um, because of the, the the terrible atrocities that have been committed. There's a general sense that, you know, this is this is going to propel them onto ever greater determination uh, to, to to win this war because there's a general feeling that if if Ukraine wins then the war is over that they will be secure but if Ukraine loses that's the end of Ukraine so they feel that they're fighting for survival uh, not just for their freedom but for the very existence of of their state and they have a very high motivation that they're fighting for their families some of whom of course they've already lost as a result of this war their their communities as I said some of them no longer exist in terms of the geographical neighborhoods. And, and their future. Um, I mean, it's no coincidence that Volodymyr Zelensky is in Brussels today uh, because Ukraine has been consistent in expressing its wish to join the European Union. And that's seen as a way of breaking the cycle, um, the abusive cycle of history. Europe, of course, has its has its flaws, the European Union, but it's seen from a Ukrainian perspective as an oasis of, of peace and prosperity and stability. So looking ahead to the next 12 months, what could the war hold for Ukraine? Is it facing a renewed offensive now from Russia? There is. And there's even talk that the the offensive is is, is already underway. I see reports that uh, in Luhansk there are already signs that that, that offensive is, is, is beginning to push forward. I mean... There's, a, I think, both sides are arguing publicly that the time is 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 on their side, but what Russia, I think, feels as the anniversary approaches that it needs to present to its public some kind of of results um, because they have failed in every sphere. I mean, they didn't capture uh, Ukraine, they didn't capture the capital or the government, they haven't even captured the four areas which they formally annexed according to their own laws in September. You might remember there were four regions: Donetsk, Luhansk. Uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia, which they said were forever Russia, but they, they don't have control of, of any of those four regions. Um, and indeed, they were pushed back in Kherson. So th- there's a feeling that, yes, they are they are trying for 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 another push. But again, they, they, where they dro- drive their resources from is is, is difficult to, to divine. As I said, their economy is 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 not particularly big. Um, and they were relying at the beginning of the war on particularly ethnic minorities. Uh, you were much more likely to be fighting in the war if you were somewhere from somewhere like Dagestan in the North Caucasus or Buryati in the Far East, and if you were from somewhere like Moscow, they're running out of you. What you might say, the the the, the people to, to to fight this war, which is why you have reports of even the prisons being opened and and prisoners being recruited, if that's the right word, into the army. So so this is considered to be a big push, and it's a big push. It's also motivated by. The fear of Ukraine getting additional weaponry. You you will have seen that you know the, the leopard tanks are being promised now to Ukraine, and and of course that's one of the reasons why Zelensky was in London yesterday, was in Paris, in Brussels as well. Now today he's looking for a- additional weaponry, which Russia is going to find it much more difficult to find 
similar types of weapons because, you know, from where will it get them? I mean, the supporters of Ukraine include really most of the top 10 economies of the world. Um, the supporters of Russia, it's looking to Iran mainly to get its drones. It's reached out to North Korea. It doesn't have an inexhaustible amount of, 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 of resources. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're going to see a push uh, in the very near future to try and deliver some kind of result. So if this happens uh, realistically, Donica, do you think Ukraine could make further gains? Is it prepared? Or were the gains that it made in 2022, taking Kherson and Kharkiv, were they the softer targets than, let's say, retaking Crimea? I think you know, Ukraine could make further gains uh, with sufficient resources. It could take everything. Certainly, that's that's the point of view of of the Ukrainian government. They say they need three to four hundred tanks, you know, to 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 push back any offensive now and to and to reclaim some of the territories in the south and the east. The official pledges thus far would give them something in the region of about a hundred and 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 fifty. So that's somewhat below that figure. Really, it's about tactics. I mean, you know, where did where do they attack? You know, when do they attack? Uh, with what do they attack? That will all depend on the, the the number of weapons and the quality of weapons that you, Ukrainians receive. I mean, at the moment, it really is down to success in the battlefield because the political uh, dispensation that will emerge from this war will be really dictated by the realities on the ground. You're not going to find Russians or Ukrainians giving up territory as a result of, of negotiations. And that's why the battle is, is, is so intense right now. But certainly the Ukrainian position has been uh, all along that with sufficient resources, they can take their country back. So there isn't any sign really that Western resolve uh, in supporting Zelensky's government is, is is waning at all. He's doing the rounds this week in the UK and, and in Europe. Could it start to fade if we don't see an end in the next year? Well, of course, there's always a risk of, of you know, support lagging. Um, I mean, after all, these are democracies that are supporting Ukraine. They have electorates, they have voters who will always question how their, their taxes are being spent. And, you know, billions have been provided uh, to Ukraine. I mean, the U.S. government has provided about 20 billion, the U.K. government in the region of three, Germany, uh, more or less around the same. It's different in a dictatorship, of course. You know, you don't have a public to to engage with, to justify huge spendings on military resources, which is one of the reasons why Russia has such a large military. And yet uh, many people in Russia don't have the basic necessities. Um, so, yeah, there is that risk. And it's Vladimir Putin's biggest potential weapon, um, you know, Europe's indifference. Uh, because, of course, the longer a war continues, I mean, there's always the greater the risk of, of apathy that, you know, people will become desensitized to the fact that there's so many atrocities occurring and, and no obvious uh, exit. And, um, you know, and we, and we do get that kind of, you know, seemingly endless stream of horror stories that sometimes will make people turn off. And that's why I think Zelensky has been particularly effective in, in, in engaging uh, with Western democracies, keeping them interested, keeping them, you know, appraised of the big picture, what's at stake? That is, you know, the worst thing that can happen is for Ukraine to lose because from their argument is, and it's been accepted by 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 Western governments, that, you know, Russia has, has an appetite which will not necessarily be satisfied with Ukraine. And of course, it will send all the wrong signals uh, to, to Ukraine's neighbors. And part of this, of course, is, you know, the West making up for, for previous inertia um, you know, th there was that failure to to punish Russia in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea, after the stimulation of conflict in Donbass. And uh, and of course, even they were slow to mobilize in, in, in February. So you're beginning to see a lot of the support only coming on stream now. I mean, the question I think for Ukraine is 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 whether certainly a country like Germany is, is willing to um, 
countenance, I guess, the defeat of Russia. There's one thing to say we don't want Ukraine to lose. It's another thing to say that we want Russia to lose. And you do get a sense from sometimes Chancellor Olaf Scholz that, that he's, he's, he's worried about the effects of a defeat of Russia, um, that it might be a, an unpredictable transformation. And of course, politicians don't often like unpredictable situations, certainly on such a scale, uh, and especially in a dictatorship where you wouldn't know what's going to come uh, next. And I remember there was a similar reticence when the Soviet Union was collapsing. It's it's forgotten now because, of course, everybody takes credit for the collapse of the Soviet Union. But George Bush uh, Sr. Uh, went to Kiev, went to Ukraine in August, three months before the Soviet Union collapsed, asking the Ukrainians not to leave the Soviet Union, saying that it was the right thing to do to stay into the Soviet Union under Gorbachev, you know, because they just didn't know what would happen after the Soviet Union collapsed. And they for- preferred predictability than unpredictability. So that's also something that Ukraine has to 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 work against within the European Union, this notion that it's it's actually a good thing if Russia loses, that it's not just about, and that you, you, European security is going to be all the stronger. Uh, you see that particularly articulated in the Baltic states. They have a very strong sentiment that it's not just a matter about helping Ukraine survive, it's also about bringing about a Russian uh, defeat in Ukraine. Well, you mentioned the Baltic states there. Do you think they're feeling less threatened than they did a year ago? There was certainly talk that Ukraine was not only not the only country in Putin's mind. Yeah, I mean, the, the Baltic states and Central Europe and, Europe and Eastern Europe generally have led European Union thinking uh, on this during the war, not least because they are in the in the neighbourhood and the most directly affected. Um, and you know, they 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 all of them have been under Kremlin rule in relatively recent history, in living memory. I mean, the the, the Prime Minister of Estonia, for example, Kaya Kallas, who has been very articulate on this. I mean, she she remembers being brought by her parents to the Berlin Wall uh, to breathe in the air of freedom that was coming from from West Berlin. I mean, you know, and she's she's a woman in her 40s, you know, so this is this is within the living memory. They remember their parents or grandparents being sent to gulags when 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 when, uh, you know, Soviet forces moved in uh, in, in, in 1940 and 41. Uh, and that's why, of course, you know, even country like Finland, which is a long tradition of neutrality and non-alignment, has decided to join NATO uh, this year. So they, they have been very strong at this. I mean, the, the, the foreign minister of, of Lithuania, um, you know, said that, look, if, if we fully and, and, and finally accept that Russia has to lose um, in, in, in this war, all of the questions are answered. And, and, and the questions he's referring to, of course, is how much support to give Ukraine. Um, and that's why he said we have to overcome our fear of victory and, and, and act decisively now. And that was, of course, aiming uh, that that message was aimed at Germany in particular, because Germany has uh, under this government, which is a coalition government. And there's a very different emphasis between the chancellor and, for example, the foreign minister, uh, the Green Party foreign minister. Um, you know, th- th- there is a, a feeling that Germany has a particular responsibility to Ukraine because Germans, they take the message of World War II that they owe something to Russia because of course, and, and of course the Russian media at the moment is, is stimulating this narrative that, oh, German tanks now are heading towards Russia is, is what you're getting on the state media. But uh, as, 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 the, as the foreign minister in Germany has argued that the real debt, historical debt uh, that, that the Germany has, if it has one, is towards uh, people in Poland and people in Ukraine. Um, uh, you know, they were the people who suffered most uh, during World War II, uh, when the Germans, of course, invaded uh, both countries, and they suffered proportionally more uh, than Russians did, because Russians tend to advertise how much they suffered during World War II, but this, the level of suffering was much greater in Poland and 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 Ukraine, and uh, and therefore that you know, and also of course because Germany was a dictatorship during World War II, that they have a particular you know mission to promote and preserve democracy um, in 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 Europe, and that of course in this war means supporting Ukraine.
And Donica, as you mentioned, there are so many global political players in the mix here. The notion of a peace deal has been floated several times, somewhat controversially, you might say. But is there any chance of a deal at all? I don't think we can talk about, you know, negotiations or a peace treaty at this stage. Both sides have polar opposite views in terms of what the requirements would be for a peace agreement. Uh, the the Ukrainian position, of course, is that they want the Russians to leave Ukraine, all of Ukraine, um, before any negotiations could be contemplated. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky has went one step further and said that it's in impossible to imagine negotiations as long as Vladimir Putin is leader of Russia. That sets the bar very high for negotiations. The Russians similarly have, uh, you know, their, their own red lines, which are, again, impossible to imagine any Ukrainian government agreeing to. They want the four regions, which, as I said, they don't control, um, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk. They want those four regions recognized as part of Russia before any negotiations can take place. So there isn't a landing spot uh, for negotiations right now. And you have to ask yourself as well, what would a peace treaty with, with Russia today be worth? I mean, in 1994, an agreement was signed uh, between Ukraine and Russia, uh, and it was guaranteed by the United States as well and and uh, the United Kingdom, which, which guaranteed the security and sovereignty of Ukraine. Uh, and the territorial integrity. And that was that was in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons. U Ukraine had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world in 1994. It inherited from the Soviet Union and it gave it up for security guarantees from Russia that they would never invade, that they would respect the, 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 the autonomy uh, of Ukraine. And that was, of course, flagrantly uh, violated. So I think there's a certain... There's a lack of trust, to put it very mildly, in Ukraine about any treaty. Uh, they, 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 their security, they feel, can only be guaranteed by being deeply embedded in Euro-Atlantic uh, structures, be they the European Union or NATO. So looking at uh, a year on, how could Ukraine or Russia win this conflict? Or, or really, are we looking at a stalemate now if Russia makes any advances? I, I don't think that we're necessarily looking at a, at a stalemate at, at all. It's a very fluid situation. This is not like World War One, uh, where you know where years would pass and 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 they'd be just you know moving very very slowly one way or the other. You know, as we've seen, I mean, the the, the Russians made you know relatively quick advances at the very beginning because, of course, they had the power of initiative. It was a war of their choosing, and the timing was of their choosing, and they had overwhelming military superiority. But then the, the Ukrainians, when they were given sufficient weapons, they were able to push back. In, in they reclaimed several thousand square kilometers uh, in in August and September. Um, so no, I, I don't think that th that this is a, a conflict that would be firstly going on for several years. I don't think that it will fall into a stalemate. Certainly, the Ukrainians don't want a, a frozen conflict. They've had experience of that uh, already. So I, I think that there's there's a certain feeling that we are entering a very decisive phase of the war now, where where both sides believe that. Whoever gains the momentum in in the coming months, you know, may it may have a decisive uh, impact on the outcome of the war. And as I've said, any any kind of arrangements, I wouldn't even call it a peace treaty, because uh, but any political arrangements which emerge will be a retroactive endorsement of what has already happened on the battlefield, which is why so much is at stake right now. This war was started, of course, by Vladimir Putin, one man. How likely do you think that it is that he could fall during the invasion? Well, I think it's very likely. I mean, dictators generally don't uh, survive the loss of a war because a dictatorship, you know, it involves, you know, the perception that they are invulnerable, that they have a monopoly, of course, of power. Uh, they're very different from democracies that way. I mean, where leaders simply come and go, there's a, you know, a healthy kind of, re, you know, cycling, you know, or, or changing of elites. Um, in, in a dictator, I mean, he will stay as long as he has power to stay. And of course, that 
perception of invulnerability is fatally punctured when they lose a war, because a war is all about military strength. Uh, you look at when, for example, I mean, it's a very different case, but still we can make the point that when Argentina invaded the, the Falklands in 1982, it was a military dictatorship in Argentina. And once they lost the war, the dictatorship, um, you know, was overthrown and and democracy was was was, was more or less reestablished. Um, so, no, I mean, I, I think it's, it's very likely um, if the war goes against Putin that his his position is in trouble. And, and of course, that makes him uh, all the more dangerous a figure potentially uh, in many respects. And finally, Donica, earlier this week, we had the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, warning that Europe could be facing into a wider war because of Ukraine. Could we be looking at this conflict spilling over into other countries at some stage in the future? You might say it's already a wider war uh, in terms of involvement of countries. And certainly that's the way that Russia is portraying it. Russia is not portraying this as uh, a war solely between Russia and Ukraine. They are presenting this as a war between Russia and, and, and the West. Now, the West is not, of course, fighting in Ukraine in terms of sending its troops, but it is committed politically, uh, militarily, uh, you might say emotionally. Um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that the, the number of refugees. I mean, Europe is hosting, you know, seven, eight million refugees. And then, of course, there are the similar number of displaced people within Ukraine. This has, you know, captured uh, the the emotions and attention of of people throughout Europe. And I think people feel that, and it's not just feeling, it's a reality. Russia has attacked Europe and, and Ukraine is the front line. So the war either ends in Ukraine or or it expands. Uh, certainly that's the feeling of, of people in the neighborhood, in neighboring Moldova, in the Baltic states and Poland, which is why, as I said, they have been particularly articulate in, in, in pushing a position that this is a war that we cannot afford to lose, that Ukraine... Uh, must win. And and that is why, as I said, it's 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 already a war of very high stakes. It's it, it's not something that the impact of which just affects Ukraine. Many thanks for all of those insights, Donica, and for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Donica Obachon, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.